I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening from today, and I would like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. When we move off into the interplanetary expanse, we will still need to be well fed. But food isn't exactly abundant in space or on other planets like Mars. The answer? Space crops. But what are the challenges of growing plants in space, and how could we develop crops to support long-term space habitation? Today, Cosmos journalist Dr Deborah Devis talks to Professor Matthew Gillaham, the director of the Waite Research Institute at the University of Adelaide. His research focuses on crop plant nutrition and stress resilience, and he is currently developing programs in space agriculture, including the growth and adaptation of plants to space environments. Thank you for joining me today, Matt. I see you've already got a big Mars in your background, which is exciting because I think a lot of people have dreams of being some sort of some sort of Matt Damon margin style person. And one of the really exciting things from that movie is that he grew plants on Mars. He grew those potatoes. So why do we care about how plants grow in space? Hmm. Yeah, well, that's a a good question. And maybe we should have asked uh, Matt Damon. Uh, I guess (laughs) the the book originally was uh, called The Botanist. So they changed the title. Maybe it was, you know, as a plant scientist, I I felt slightly affronted by that. That uh, hurts. Yeah, but plants are cool too, right? And we depend upon them for life here on Earth. And when we go to the, when we go to Mars, you know, behind me here, or, or to the, or, or further afield, maybe in years to come, we're going to depend upon plants as well. So the the vision really for the many countries around the world and for the space agencies. They've set targets to to get to to Mars in about 2040 or just beyond. We're a long way away from being able to prepare the the life systems, life support systems to enable that. So the the ability of us to to get there, as we all know, we've got the Ingenuity um, little copter and the Perseverance rover on the Mars surface moment. We can get there, but to support humans to live there or at least to get there and back, which is going to take three years. The supply of food is a massive problem. Um, we don't have the ability to do that currently, and we're going to have to produce nutrition on the way. So in terms of space and plants, that's one of the major drivers. There are others, um, and I'm happy to chat about those, but the main one is is nutrition. And food is always like the main thing that I care about, at least. And I think a lot of people, while we kind of think of um, space as rockets, knowing that we are able to sustain ourselves through those long distance travel, it, it does all come down to plants. But what's the problem there? Why do we need to research them in space as opposed to Earth? What kind of, do they grow differently in space? Yeah, that's a really good question. I guess there's a few answers to that question. You've got a few layers there. You know, Why are we why are we caring about doing it in space? Um, I think I can probably answer that one first. Um, obviously, we have many challenges here on our own planet and some detractors of the space race, if you want to, for want of a better word, or, or exploration in space are saying, well, we've got too many problems here. We should improve sustainability. We should um, here on Earth. And I, 
undeniably agree that that is one of the biggest challenges we have. Using the lens of space to innovate can really um, bring new solutions to bear. And, and there's been many examples of, of that over time, from uh, LED lighting to air purification systems and the like. But the things that we can do with plants in space to bring that back here on Earth and innovate, that's really what we're looking at. Now, you asked um, about some of the challenges that we have. So the challenges in space, there's quite a few. Obviously, plants didn't evolve to grow in space in the first place. We are able to grow them in conditions that are fairly controlled, and obviously we'll have to do that. So think um, your controlled environment, agriculture, your vertical farms. I mean, they're becoming quite common here on Earth, uh, in, our, in our cities, and even in our supermarkets now, they're starting to open them up. So with those kinds of things, we can tightly control conditions. But what we can't do is control some of those issues in space, like microgravity or, or the lack of gravity, indeed. Um, the other things that we can't necessarily control as well is high CO2. So let's talk about gravity first. It's, it's not necessarily the, the vector of gravity working on the plants that the that is the issue, plants can actually learn to, well, not learn, sorry, scrub that. Learn is not the right <laughs> word. We're not going to get into plant intelligence here. So, so plants can use different cubes like light or nutrients in the, in the soil to direct their roots down. Some plants freak out a little bit without gravity, but the real problem with gravity is water and the movement of water. It becomes sticky and creepy in a space. So it can envelop roots, it can envelop leaves. Uh, it prevents oxygen getting to the plant. And obviously without oxygen, like us, um, we, uh, the plant will expire. Another the problem is that without gravity, convection doesn't occur. So that means mixing of nutrients in the water profile, but it also means um, air movement. So you have to have fans to move everything about, and they can be toxic buildup of gases and things like that. So you need to be able to move air about. And high CO2, that's the last one I guess I mentioned in this answer. High CO2, we're worried about 600 parts per million by the latter half of this century here on Earth. The conditions for CO2 at the moment on the space station, on the ISS, are 2,000 parts per million or just above. And plants have issues growing at that kind of uh, CO2 level. So the kinds of things that we'll do, particularly for CO2, adapting plants to, to grow in those kinds of conditions, will be able to be brought back here on Earth and help us uh, cope with those kinds of increasing CO2 levels here on Earth. And those all seem like external factors to the, the actual plant itself, but I assume that um, the gravity is going to be different on the way to Mars than it will be on Mars. So how do you even test those two things? Yeah, that, that's really good. So testing is a bit of an issue. So we can do it in four ways. One is we can obviously send plants up to the ISS currently. And there's groups around the world doing that. In fact, they're running experiments with peppers and cotton at the moment from the space station. 
you can follow those uh, tweets of what's happening at the moment with those. Um, so you can, by, by doing them on the space station, you expose them to those conditions. However, astronauts are very limited in time, they're very pleasant people, and the kinds of experiments that we can do there are probably not as precise and in detailed as we might like. So instead of having a, you know, a dedicated plant scientist going up there and, and really examining the plants in detail every day, there's very limited interaction we can have. So we're working on ways, or we would like to work on ways to remotely access those experiments and monitor them. Another way that we can do things is to simulate certain conditions here on Earth. So high CO2, we can grow plants in those ridiculously high CO2 levels. We can simulate gravity. We have machines, as one called the random positioning instrument, or, and it, it moves constantly, falling the plant to, to remove one single constant vector of gravity. And we're growing plants in those and simulating either, say, lunar or Mars or, or even uh, very, very low gravity as you might get on the space station. Um, another thing you can do is model. So you build a digital twin of all the parameters that you know about, all the parameters that you're getting from your experiments, whether they're here on Earth or up in space, and you can simulate those types of environments and those can give you clues as to what to do next and how to tweak the system, whether that's from a, an engineering point of view, so what kind of control systems you need, or whether it's from a genetics point of view or a plant biology point of view. And if you're also going to be looking at Mars and space, um, I suppose that the soil would be quite different as well. Do you have to import loads of soil with you? Yeah, that, that again is a really significant issue, obviously, in terms of getting payload to somewhere. And that's why nutrition per se is an issue for that long duration trip. It won't, I think, um, and I'm pretty certain, it won't be about necessarily using soil that we bring with us. The best thing that we can do if we want to use the regolith of the lunar surface or Mars is to probably clean it up somehow because there are, as well as some nutrients that are useful for plants, there are also some, some um, toxic compounds in there. What is probably more likely in the, when I say near term, I'm talking about in 20 years time plus when we go to the Mars surface, is that we'll be growing plants probably underground to shield them from other factors like high radiation that I didn't even talk about, uh, cosmic radiation, which can mutate uh, both us and, and the plants. And they'll be grown in, in situations akin to a vertical farm. So using aeroponics probably, or, or some form of hydroponics. Wow, that's, I'm just imagining all these like underground crop fields that stretch out really really far all filled up with lights and leds so i can see what you mean when you're saying when we learn these things in mars we can bring them back to earth because we've we've got simulations of them here um you mentioned that some of the things that are grown in space are cotton and capsicum how do you choose what types of plants might be suitable for that that importing yeah that's a really good question so the the types of plants that nasa are growing at and uh, cotton is 
is probably not the best example of that, but capsicum is tomato, um, those kinds of pick and eat crops. So they're, they're already trying to study how pick and eat crops that you can harvest and add um, supplements to the meal to make them more interesting. They're, they're examining how those grow. So what we are looking to do is to not necessarily work on those types of solutions, but more about can we use the latest uh, gene editing techniques and synbio techniques to modify the plant to be better suited to uh, approaching zero waste. So can we reduce the amount of waste that we produce? And we can talk about why that's important in a minute, if you like. Can we use most of the plant for, for eating or, or for other uses as well? Can we optimize the type of nutrition? So we're not necessarily looking at your traditional tomato plants that we might see in controlled environment conditions, but we're thinking about you know, some of these other types of crops that allow us to tightly control and improve nutritional quality and, and reduce waste. So tell me about that waste. Yeah, so obviously, again, when we're talking about solutions that we need here on Earth for sustainability, food waste is a massive issue. And for instance, in Australia, I think the stats are that per person, we waste about 300 kilograms equivalent food a year. That's about one in five shopping bags, if you like. 25% of that is nothing to do with consumers. It's on-farm waste. So before the crops even get to market, there are food that is, is not up to the, the quality or, or beyond that. And these are stats that are not even measured. There are parts of the plant that we then don't harvest. They just degrade. On Earth, we can deal with that. We can either turn them into manure, you know, compost and the like, and we can put them back or... or so there can be uses here on Earth. However, in space, we're going to have to take everything with us and we can't waste anything. It's the ultimate closed system in a way. And we're going to have to, because it's so expensive, difficult to get things up in space, we're going to have to be able to use everything optimally. So that's the whole point. If we can approach zero waste in space, so we don't even have to eat all the plant, but we have to put it to some kind of use, whether that's biofuel production or the feeding of other nutrient sources, maybe insects or the like, then we're going to have to think of novel ways to, to reduce that waste. And if we can come up with solutions in space, then applying some of those here on Earth to reduce food waste is, is going to be an opportunity that we would be foolish to ignore. So that's a huge range of different problems that need to be solved just, just so we can eat a little bit. That alone is one thing. And what are some of the questions you're trying to answer? What are some of the projects you're trying to do? Yeah, so obviously this is a, a problem that is to be able to grow plants in space and, and broader than that to, to have that as a nutritional source or a source of other items, biomaterials in space. It's a bigger problem than one single group can, can tackle by themselves. So we're collaborating with researchers across Australia and around the world and posing questions that will help in you know, 
before the 20 years time period that's needed uh, before we go to Mars to, to offer some new solutions and, and prior to that even to feed those solutions back here on Earth. So some of those questions. So can we yeah, optimise nutrition of single plants or, or a selection of small number of plants to provide optimal nutrition? So reducing any reliance because we're not going to have little mini goats necessarily or, or sheep or, or cows on the space station or, or Mars, maybe we will, but um, I doubt it. So can we feed those back for solutions here on Earth for improving vegan diets or, or you know, highly plant-based diets? Can we process those mineral plant forms into multiple interesting food types? So you might get bored of eating a single food type, and, that, and that's a major problem up in space, actually. They get menu fatigue because essentially it's a monotonous diet of, for want of a better word, microwaved, prepackaged, dehydrated food. So having food produced different textures, so 3D printing meat-like textures from plant-based materials, um, you know, all kinds of yogurt-like drinks, or you know, multiple food forms with optimal nutrition. Psychology is also something that's very important. So in the sterile environment of space, when you're isolated from Earth, having plants around is also actually psychologically a major boost. So tending to plants, having plants around, we all know going out to nature is important for our well-being. Having the, the ability to care for plants and, and have them in that environment and also producing oxygen that we breathe is, is going to be a massive benefit as well for long-distance uh, space travel and enabling long-term space habitation. So you mentioned tiny little, tiny little goats and things like that. We can't take them, but there are lots of organisms that are really important in plant growth and looking at microorganisms in soil. Do we have to take them as well? Yeah, that, that's, that's something that we are debating um, across the, if you like, the, the community at the moment. So what we are beginning to learn, and there's been a number of studies by some of our collaborators um, that have shown that microorganisms that are often beneficial here on Earth may or are not harmful at the very least, do become pathogenic to plants in space. So we have to be very careful about microorganisms. And that's one of the, the reasons that plants are a, a solution to nutrition. And rather than using bacterial or fungal type um, solutions, I'm not saying that they're not going to be needed. We're going to have to have complementary solutions. But plants, because they produce their own energy from and the energy that we we consume as well through sugars from sunlight so the plants obviously photosynthesize co2 and light and water produce uh, the energy that we need they need bacteria and fungi will need plants to be able to feed themselves to, to make that so they're the primary part of the food chain so can we grow, and that was a really good question actually, can we grow plants successfully without those beneficial microorganisms? Um, that is a challenge because we know that 
plants need the microbiome, their own microbiome too, like we do. So yeah, how how do we interact with that? What's the minimal form? Can we eliminate it completely? Or do we need some of those microorganisms? Mm, and I, I have enough trouble keeping this plant alive so I can't even imagine the difficulties that are that are going to happen on Mars so when we finally get there if that's in 20 years or 30 years or beyond how do you think the plant science that we're learning on earth and in space are going to be applied yeah I I would like to think in 20 30 years time the technology that we've been developing been able to develop over that time allows us to use plants as a programmable chassis for many outputs. So let's think about if, and it will happen, someone might get sick on in Mars. It's a, a nine-month trip currently to, to get there. We're not going to be able to take everything with us when we go. We're going to have to be able to produce things on demand. So let's, and we already know that uh, through COVID, I think it's a great example, we were able to produce mRNA and DNA, DNA quite successfully in a local um, scale. We can apply that to plants to transform them rapidly to produce a medicine on demand um, and process that and within a few days have what we need to, to treat a certain condition. Similarly with plastics, we can make those in plants. We can make uh, bioconcrete and all kinds of things when we combine that with uh, regolith on the, the lunar or Mars surface. So can we use them as programmable chassis to get the, the required results, whatever that is, optimal nutrition, building materials, medicines and the like. And I, I'm quite confident with that amount of time, that runway of you know, that 20-year period, and I'm quite confident within the next five to 10 years, we will be a long way towards being able to do that if we get the right type of investment. I think that kind of solution here on Earth will be even more beneficial to us. I don't know why, but I'm um, imagining these really, really expensive imported margin tomatoes that were grown on the surface of Mars that become really popular here. But I think it's astounding the amount of science that has to go into colonizing Mars that we don't always think about. And I know that when I was a child, there was I did not know there was such a thing as space botany. So I hope to see what all of our space botanists do in the future. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I cannot wait to see what we learn about plants in space. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, current affairs and the economy intersect. And all listeners to the podcast can use the special code that you'll find in the description to get a discount on these products. You can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link that you'll also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. 
I'm Chuck Smeaton. Today's interview was hosted by Dr. Deborah Devis, and our executive producer is Catherine Roberts. Thank you.